Hey, thanks, Denise. Welcome, everyone, this gorgeous Monday night. Um, tonight, we are going to talk about amends. Um, I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And if you have your big book, we are on page 76. Um, the third paragraph, right after it says, we have then completed step seven. And then it says, now we have more action. Because remember, step seven, that was God's action. We had done an inventory. We had looked at our defects, our resentments, our fears, um, where we've harmed people, and we've asked God to remove it. So we did our action. Then step seven, God comes in and does some rewiring in our hearts. So once we've completed it, it tells us we need more action, without which we find that faith without works is dead. I found it really interesting that in one sentence, they use two like action words, action and work. And they say that without these things, faith is dead, right? I, I know in my life, I always believed in God. I can't remember ever not believing God. So what? It was totally irrelevant to my life. It's like, I believe there's a king and king of England, totally irrelevant to my life. Um, if I were diabetic and I believed in insulin, but I wasn't taking the action of injecting the insulin in my arm properly, the fact that I believed in insulin, even if I believed that insulin was the solution to my diabetic problem, it would do me no good without action. So it tells us this is a program of action, spiritual action. And it says, okay, now let's look at steps eight and nine. We have a list of all persons we've harmed and to whom we are willing to make amends. Okay, we have a list. Where'd we get this list? So in the fourth step, we make a list of our harms and there's different ways to do it. I believe we have a sheet on our website, but it would have four columns. The first column would be who I hurt. The second column would be what I did. The third column, and this is really important, how that hurt the person or the store or whatever. And then the fourth column, I tell my sponsees, leave that blank in your fourth step. You'll fill in that part in on step eight. And that's what the amend should be. So some examples, an easy one, Macy's. What, you know, who I hurt, Macy's. What did I do? I stole a shirt worth $50. How did it hurt them? They were out $50. So now when I get to my amends part, if we think of it like a scale, like, uh-oh, they were out $50. My amend needs to set the scale right. So the amend would be pay them back $50. Okay, that one's easy. So how about I hurt Susie? What did I do? I punched her in the nose. How did it hurt her? So this is important because that's what's going to, to help me know what my amend should be. So if I hurt her because I broke her nose and she had a $2,000 doctor bill, and that's how the scale went under, I need to give her $2,000. But if I hurt her because I embarrassed her in front of her friends, and she didn't break her nose, she was just embarrassed, that was the harm. And I need to fix that harm, not by giving her $2,000, but first it may be by apologizing to her, by going to her friends who witness it and telling them that I was wrong, 
So that's why that third column is so important. A lot of times the harm we've caused is we, especially to, let's say our family members, um, let's say mom, dad, I could increase the list ad infinitum. What did I do? I was mean and nasty. How did it hurt them? Well, it may have caused them a lot of stress. So that's where the scale went down. What's something I can do to write the scale? Well, maybe it's giving an elderly parent a foot massage and a pedicure. Maybe it's buying them a gift certificate for a spa because that writes, you know, that um, decreases stress. So that's what we want to do when we do our ninth step. Well, our eighth step, we want to figure out what was the harm and how to fix it. So in that paragraph, it says, we've already made our drastic self-appraisal. We attempt to sweep away the debris which has accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. So all the harm that I've created in my life, all the wreckage, all the debris is because I've tried to live on self-will and run the show. Okay, what does that look like? Living on self-will and running the show. Um, well, for those of us with kids, well, at least for me, it manifested a lot with my children. Running the show meant I had in my mind how they were going to be sometimes, and then I would work toward that goal, even if it was a good goal, but that was me running the show. So for instance, um, determined that once they got to college, they would still go to church. Nothing I could control, but every Sunday for a while, it was like, did you go to church? Did you go to church? Well, if they didn't, that would force them to either have to deal with a disappointed mom or lie to me. And I realized that's running the show. Whether they go to church or not is none of my business. They're not six years old anymore. So I don't ask them anymore. Um, living on self-will. For me, a lot of the self-will is um, trying to determine the future. Um, here's my recent self-will one where I was getting all frustrated because my husband and I are thinking of moving and we're checking out North Carolina. So I was going on houses and looking at prices and getting all, you know, like, oh my gosh, I don't know if we can afford it. What if we go and we don't like it? And I meditated on it. And what came to me was like, we relax and take it easy. Um, we don't struggle. And I realized I was living in self-will. Like my job now is to go down and visit the state and see if I even like it, but it's not my job to try and figure out, okay, if we sell our house, what's the best month to sell it? That's all self-will. If God means for me to be in North Carolina, he'll make provision without me stressing out myself and stressing out my husband. So it says we cause harm and create wreckage when we try to live on self-will and run the show. And then it says something interesting. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. Remember, it was agreed at the beginning, we would go to any lengths for victory over alcohol or for us food. Why are they putting that warning here? And I'll tell you, because it's hard. So they say, if we're not willing to do this, we ask. Whenever it says ask pertaining to God, it means pray. Like, who do we ask? We ask God until it comes. And look at that beautiful implied promise. It will come. The willingness will come as answer to prayer. 
and they remind us we agreed to go to any lengths for victory over food. That means we might be embarrassed, we might face some hard times, um, but we have to do it. And they say, yeah, there's gonna be some misgivings. Um, it's gonna be hard. And there were some things at the beginning I didn't have the will to do, but it was, but my um, lack of desire to do these amends was not as strong as my fear of going back into the food. But then they tell us something really interesting. So they say, we don't you know, sit there and go in and say, I'm with God now, I have to make amends because I'm this you know, godly saintly person and I harmed you and I need to clean it up. They say, no, we don't do that. Um, we might prejudice the other person. You know, they're gonna roll. I, if I stole a bunch of money from you and then come back and said, I'm really spiritual now. So I need to, I need to give you the money back because I'm just too good to steal money anymore. You're gonna roll your eyes and not wanna talk to me anymore. So we don't do that. Um, and they tell us, yeah, right now we're trying to put our own lives in order, right? That's why, I mean, that's why we do our fourth step and make our amends. No one wants to do it um, except me. I love doing a fourth step because I it meant I get got to write and talk about my favorite subject of all time, myself. Um, but, you know, most of the time we don't like doing it. And it says we're trying to put our own lives in order, right? We want to stop binging. It says, but this isn't an end to itself. What? Like, I just came here to stop binging. You're telling me that's not it? And they say, yeah, our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So it's like, God helps me stop binging cleans me up on the inside so I'm not a selfish, self-centered person causing wreckage so that I can be of maximum service to him and the people about us. You know, we say around here that God launches search and rescue missions for addicts. Well, the way he does it is he gets other addicts to come help him on his rescue missions. And that is one of our purposes. Yes, we can still be wives and mothers and workers, but you know, our purpose to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So it's my job to fit myself to be of service. And then God can put me wherever he wants me. Then they tell us again, it's not wise to go to someone who heart, who we've hurt and you know, just say, I've got religion. We can do that when we're carrying this message. Remember, Ebidet did that with Bill. He said, I've recovered because of God. Um, but when we're making amends, it says, when we start out, um, this is bottom of page 77, simply we tell him we will never get over drinking until we've done our utmost to straighten out the past. We're there to sweep off our side of the street. So basically the conversation should start, you know, Susie, I'm a compulsive eater. I have an eating disorder. I'm in a 12-step program to recover from it. And I can never recover until I cleaned up my past. And as I looked at my past, I saw that one of the people I hurt was you. I punched you in the nose. You had a broken nose. I know you had doctor bills and I didn't do anything about it. I'm really sorry. Here's a check for $1,000 or whatever the fee was but we say that we're doing it for ourselves. 
that's a lot more humbling than saying, I'm so spiritual. I would, you know, that I just have to fix everything because that's where me and all the people at the top of the mountain hang out. We just never do anything wrong. We humble ourselves and we say why we're doing it. Page 78, it gives us some guidance. It says, we never try to tell the other person what he should do. So we don't say, yes, Susie, I punched you in the nose, but that's because, you know, you, you kicked me in the shins first. We don't do that. That's totally irrelevant. We clean up what we do. And it says in nine cases out of 10, the unexpected happen. Feuds of years standing melt away. Um, former enemies praise us and wish us well. Sometimes they offer to help us. And it says, um, but it doesn't matter if someone throws us out of his office. That actually happened to me once. I had to make an amend at work. My boss had told me years ago not to let a sales rep return something. And I didn't think that was the right thing to do. So I told the sales rep she could return it. And I realized I, it wasn't my company. So I went and I told my boss and he, he didn't fire me, but he threw me out of his office that day. Didn't matter. I set right what I did wrong. 78 still something really important. It says most of us owe money. We don't dodge our creditors. And it says we must lose our fear of creditors, no matter how far we have to go, for we are liable to drink if we are afraid to face them. I think that's really interesting because sometimes people say that, well, if someone picks up, it means they need to go back to step one. But so here's what someone might do if they owed Susie $1,000 for punching her in the nose and didn't want to pay her. They go to step one and get all the way to step eight and then pick up and then get a new sponsor and go all the way back to step one and keep going to step eight and doing the eight step dance over and over and over. What should that person do instead? They pick up, they realize, you know, whenever someone picks up, a sponsor should help them do a deep dive into figuring out what is the cause of the relapse? Why did it happen? And then, you know, the person, if she's honest, would say, I don't want to pay back Susie. And then a good sponsor won't say, well, then you must not know your compulsive eater and go back to step one. A good sponsor will say, you need to pay Susie. Tell me the time frame within you'll pay Susie. And, you know, we'll help the person craft their amends statement to Susie and maybe even go with her or at the very least say, call me before and call me after you make your amend to Susie. We don't dodge our creditors for we are liable to drink, to eat compulsively if we're afraid to face them. They tell us if we've done things like pad the expense account, we need to tell on ourselves. Um, it says, Again, page 79, reminding ourselves that we've decided to go to any length to find a spiritual experience, we ask, again, pray, that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing, no matter what the personal consequences may be. So we've gone to any length, not to stop binging, but to have a spiritual experience. Why? Um, well, if I've got a tumor in my head, I can take, um, I don't know, I guess opioids 
and that'll get rid of the headache for a while. But my goal isn't to get rid of the headache. My goal is to get rid of the tumor. So I need chemo, radiation, whatever, surgery is going to get rid of the tumor. So for us, we it's not enough to just say, we'll stop eating because first we can't do that on our own. If we would, we wouldn't all be here on a Monday night. We'd be like outside catching fireflies. We've gone to any length to find a spiritual experience because that's the way we're going to stop eating compulsively. That's what's going to give us the strength, the inner spiritual power to stop eating compulsively, a spiritual experience. So that's what we're chasing. We're not chasing abstinence. We're chasing a spiritual experience, which results in abstinence. And it gives us some guidance. If other people are involved, we're not supposed to be foolish martyrs who would needlessly sacrifice others to save himself from the alcoholic pit. However, it does not say um, we're not to sacrifice ourselves. Sometimes we really need to give up money, give up comfort, give up something for another person. And it gives us um, some examples. Page 80, it talks about a man who borrowed money from a business rival, didn't give him a receipt, later said, I never got any money from the guy, and the guy was totally ruined. So he used his own wrongdoing, his own lying, to ruin another person. Well, this is a guy who we can understand would be an alcoholic, but then he got better. He got sober, and he started working the steps. And he says, okay, what am I going to do? If I do anything, it may destroy the reputation of my new business partner. My family may be disgraced and I may lose my job. I mean, there's people depending on me. What do I do? He went to his wife. He went to his business partner. And this is what he said, that he realized it was better to take those risks of losing his job than to stand before his creator guilty of such ruinous slander. So it's saying one day he knew he was going to stand before God and that he would have to answer for, why did you ruin the livelihood of one of my other children? He didn't want to hear God saying that to, to him. See, God was real to him. And he, it says, he saw he had to place the outcome in God's hands or he would soon start drinking again and all would be lost anyhow. Okay, how do we place an outcome in God's hands? So what does that mean? It means I do what I think God would have me and I don't worry about the results. I don't think about what's going to happen. So for me now, this isn't an amend situation, but has been a challenging one. I go to North Carolina next week with my husband as scheduled. I take a tour around a couple of different cities to get ideas. And I don't worry about next steps. Don't even think about it until we've done that. That way I don't stress my husband out by saying, I don't know if I want to move. I don't know if I want to move. Um, you know, it's what if we don't like it? What if my pollen allergies act up? Nope. I just do what I think I'm supposed to, which is investigate and place the outcome in God's hands. With my children, I'm loving. I keep a good relationship with open channels with them. 
and I don't bug them about whether or not they go to church. I place the outcome in God's hands, which means I pray that they surrender their lives to God um, in accordance with his will, but it's, it's in God's hands, not my hands. And this guy said, he, if he didn't place the outcome in God's hands, he would soon start drinking again and he'd lose his wife, lose his business anyway. Like that's how seriously the founders of AA took this program. That if I drink again, I'm going to lose my family, my job, everything. Um, that they took it seriously. And that's how seriously we should take it. And then they talk about domestic troubles. Basically, if someone's had an affair and they're very clear that they're not going to be clear, that they're not going to give um, pat advice and say, you must tell your spouse you've had an affair or you must not. They, this is a time where it's important to consult with God and with a sponsor and, you know, just be very careful. So a lot of times people talk about living amends. So that term is like not in the big book. But in going through these pages today, I saw some things that if we do feel we need to make living amends, what does that mean? And so on page 82 and 83, it tells us a few things. Number one, we let the past stay in the past. So that means once we've discussed something with someone, um, that's it. It's over and done. So that means if someone's done something to hurt me and I've forgiven them, I can't bring it up. You know, I can't bring up the time my husband was like sarcastic to me and hurt my feelings. I brought it up then. He apologized. That's it. It's done. I don't get to bring it up again. And likewise, um, I made amends to my children. And that means they can't bring it up. They can't come and say, mom, you know, when I was 10 years old, you did whatever, whatever. Because if they did, I'd say, I know. And remember, I apologize. We set it all straight. It's in the past. I don't need to feel guilty for something I've done that I've made amends for, nor do I have a right to make someone else feel guilty for something they've done in the past and made amends for. So that's number one, let the past stay in the past. Number two, for living amends, we pray for the person. It says we pray, keeping having the other one's happiness uppermost in mind. So that means praying what would make this person happy? God, show me how to make that person happy. Now, again, we need common sense, right? If we're praying, if, we, if we're talking about our children, well, what would make them happy is to never have to go to school and to have ice cream for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? So we pray about, I would say, what, what's good for the other person? What's you know, good for their well-being? Um, the third thing in a living amend, not to think that being sober is enough. Like I'm not binging anymore. You should be grateful. No, that's, that's not part of it. Um, number four, we take the lead in the period of reconstruction ahead because we've done a lot of damage. So sometimes people say, well, my, let's say my husband has done a bunch of bad things. You know, am I supposed to just take it? And here's what I would say. I would say, first, you make your amends until you're through the ninth step, unless he's doing something dangerous, like beating the children, letting them play in traffic. You don't say anything about what he's doing. 
after the ninth step, we take the lead, you know, sit down with the family, frankly, analyze the past, being careful not to criticize. So what my husband and I do is we set aside Sunday nights where that's a time where either of us can bring up anything the other one has done, you know, during the week that's bothered them, you know, and it's a time where we listen and we don't get defensive. And then it's like, okay, you know, um, didn't realize that bothered you. One thing my husband said is that um, there's never any clean tablespoons. So if he goes to cook, you know, because I use all the tablespoons. So um, he said, can you just leave me one tablespoon to use? So guess what he got for Father's Day? This beautiful set of measuring spoons. That was one of his gifts. Not the only gift, I'm not cheap. Um, but, you know, so that was something that was on his mind, a little thing. But if he had, if there wasn't a space for him to bring it up, it might have festered. So, um, and again, he didn't criticize me. He just said, can you leave me out of all the tablespoons in the house? Can you just leave one clean? I said, sure. Um, so that's something we do. We don't criticize. Then we analyze our parts. So that we do in our nightly review. You know, we look to see, have I hurt anyone? What could I have done better? We think about the people in our house. It's a lot easier to think about Oh, you know, I worked with a bunch of sponsees today and it's like, yeah, but I didn't like do my chores around the house. So we need to, that's part of our living amends. And again, pray. We ask, it says, asking our creator each morning that our creator show us the way of patience, tolerance, kindliness, and love. Patience. That means I don't get to set the timetable for when my family members are going to change. I pray for patience to wait for God's time. Tolerance, that means my ability to withstand like pain is raised. The threshold is raised. So remember um, in another chapter in the book, I think it's a family afterwards. It says, we alcoholics are extremely sensitive people. It takes some of us a long time to outgrow this serious handicap. So we don't want to be hypersensitive. We want to have tolerance. Yeah, so someone insults me. Okay, whatever. The creator of the stars has my back. It doesn't matter if someone doesn't like me. Kindliness. We pray for the ability to just be kind, to do nice things for other people and love, to put the welfare of others ahead of our own, to sacrifice for the good of others. And it says the spiritual life isn't a theory. We have to live it. And unless the family says, oh, you know, mom, dad, I, I want to live on spiritual principles just like you, just don't talk to them incessantly about it. And then a, a lovely promise, they will change in time because our behavior will convince them more than our words. How we treat them, how we act toward them is more important than what we say. Um, it says, remember that all these years of drunkenness or a mom drugged out on food, you know, on the couch makes a skeptic out of anyone. Um, and it says, sometimes there's wrongs we can't fully right. Um, then we don't worry about it. Sometimes a person's sponsor will say, if the person isn't there, you just let it go. Some sponsors say you try and make it 
indirectly some other way. Um, and it says sometimes there's a valid reason for postponing, but we don't delay if it can be avoided. I think the order in which we should do things if we can, the best way is in person. If we can't do it in person, the best way is over some kind of video call like Skype or FaceTime, then um, a phone call. And then like the least desirable way would be like an email or a letter. But, you know, sometimes people really don't want to see us. And then we just send them a letter and whether they respond or not is not our business. And it tells us how we should always be sensible, tactful, considerate and humble without being servile or scraping. Um, it says, as God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. And I think that's just good guidance for anyone who's in an abusive relationship, a truly abusive relationship. We are the children of God. We don't crawl. We don't grovel before others. But we don't want to fall off on the other side of the bed and be too prideful because we do sometimes um, have to humble ourselves when we make our amends. And then it tells us what we get. If, so I say, if and only if, so this is a conditional promise. If we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we'll be amazed before we're halfway through. So if we do this carefully, now I think um, some people are great wordsmiths and may fight work and may fight um, wars over what it means, this phase of our development. Does it mean when we're halfway through with the, our ninth step amends? Does it mean with when we're halfway through with the steps in general, like when we're at step four and a half? And I say, don't know don't care, doesn't matter. These are the promises we will get. Um, it says we will be amazed. So that means surprised in a good way. And what happens? We are going to know a new freedom, a freedom from what? A freedom from obsessing about food, a freedom from caring about what other people think about me, a freedom from needing to know the future even a freedom from knowing that my kids are going to be okay. Because how can I know that anyway? Even if they seem okay today, they may not tomorrow. And even if they seem like train wrecks today, well, who knows that, you know, God might appear to them in a vision tomorrow and they're wonderful. So, you know, freedom from needing to know the future, freedom from needing to be in control and a new happiness a happiness that isn't dependent on circumstances. And then what else? We won't regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. So the things in the past that we've done in the chapter, the family afterwards, it says we don't regret the past because the dark past is the key to averting misery for others. Um, and that really happened to me. Some of you have heard me before say that one of the you know, things I did in the illness is I faked a rape. I just took a razor, cut myself up, you know, called my boyfriend and told him I'd been raped, went to, went to the hospital, got a fake rape exam, the whole bit. Well, I got a sponsee and she told me I did that too. I faked a rape too. So my dark past was used to be able to help another person. And really, if, if I've done something like that, 
how, you know, in a fist step, how could anyone be embarrassed about what they did? Like, did you really do anything worse than that? And even if you did, it's okay. You know, I won't judge it. Um, it says, we will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. How? Because we've learned the formula for serenity and peace. It's on page 68. It says, we trust infinite God rather than our finite selves. We are in the world to play the role he assigns. That's all I need to do. Look for the role that God has assigned me. Just to the extent that we do as we think God would have us and humbly rely on him, does he enable us to match calamity with serenity? So they're telling me my serenity isn't dependent on outside circumstances. It's dependent on how well I do two things. One, do what I think God would have me do, take the action I think he would have me, and two, humbly rely on him, take the right action and leave the results up to him. And that gives me serenity and that gives me peace. Then it tells us no matter how far down the scale we've gone, we will see how our benefit, how our experience can benefit others. I was once talking about that line in a meeting um, where there was a whole bunch of anorexics. And I guess they get a kick out of that line. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, they take that literally. No matter how far down or how far up the scale we have gone, it doesn't matter. Our experience can benefit others, which leads to the next promise. Because if my experience is helping others, then that feeling of uselessness and self-pity will disappear. I'm not gonna feel useless anymore. I'm useful, I'm helping others, that feels good. And then I'm not gonna feel sorry for myself. We feel sorry for ourselves when our life isn't going the way we think it is. But if I'm spending time helping other people, seeing them get better, I'm not feeling useless. So I've got no reason to feel sorry for myself. I'm grateful. Then it tells us something that just seems to start happen, happening. At first, we have to put our attention to unselfish things, but it tells us what will happen. As a result of doing these steps, we will lose interest in selfish things. Okay, we lose that and what do we gain? Interest in our fellows. We start really caring about other people and their needs. Self-seeking will slip away. We don't have to try to get things for ourselves because again, we know God's got my back. He'll give me everything that he knows I need. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. That is true. Instead of thinking, what can I get for myself? And this world stinks. It's, I've got way more than I deserve, way more than I ever could have asked or imagined that I don't deserve. And I'm grateful. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. So it doesn't say we'll be millionaires, but it says we won't be afraid. Because again, God's got my back. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us, right? We have a way to handle situations, right? It tells us when we don't know what to do, we relax, we pause, we ask God, and then we wait. We don't run on self-will that I have to solve all problems at once. And then what happens? We will suddenly realize God is doing for us what we couldn't 
do for ourselves. Um, he's doing things that we just can't. I remember when I first moved to New Jersey from New York, I moved here because I got a job out here. I'd been living in New York City for a number of years and I got a job, but I didn't have a place to live, didn't have a car. So where I went to work and I was just coming in as a pretty junior person and it just happened that someone who'd had a had the job before me had a company car and was leaving. So now there was a company car available. By the way, I didn't even have a driver's license because I lived in New York City. But um, but someone who worked at that company taught me how to drive my new company car. And I didn't have a place to live. So I was going around looking, you know, at like I think synagogues, churches, whatever, looking for a place to live. And I went to one place. And I was about to put up a sign and the guy said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm looking for an apartment. He said, I just put a sign up. I'm renting out the top floor of my house. So I'd like a car, a place to live. Um, I went to my first OA meeting there and I sat down and I talked. The girl next to me cried. We went out in the hallway and talked and we became close and started going to meetings together. Um, like God provided everything I needed. He did for me what I could never do for myself and says, are these extravagant promises? Because if we're new, if we're in the food, we think like, no way. And they say, we think not. They are being fulfilled among us, fulfilled by God. Again, these aren't things I do for myself. We have a God who loves us so much that if he just removed the food obsession, that would be amazing love beyond belief but he throws in all this in addition. Like how could we not turn our will and our lives over to a God like this? These promises are being fulfilled by God, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly, but they will always 100% of the time materialize if we work for them. Not just have faith and believe that they will happen if we do the work, if we get a concept of God that works for us, if we're willing to do what our sponsors tell us, if we surrender our lives to God, if we inventory our paths, ask God to remove our defects and make our amends, if we do that work, we will get these promises. And with that, I pass. Thank you.